Cheers to a great day and this ice-cold Corona. You know what would make this day even better? My grandma's carne asada. Throw in some music. We can watch the game. Or we could keep it simple. Corona, la vida más fina. Get your Corona at ordercorona.com. Relax responsibly. Corona extra beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to The Savvy Psychologist. I'm Dr. Ellen Hendrickson, and every week I'll help you meet life's challenges with evidence-based research, a sympathetic ear, and zero judgment. Okay, so this week we have a twist on the usual episode. It is an audio excerpt from How to Be Yourself, Quiet Your Inner Critic, and Rise Above Social Anxiety. Okay, so why are we doing this? Well, this is the particular chapter that I've gotten the most feedback about since the book came out. And I think it's because it covers something we all think about, but no one really talks about. And what could that be, you ask? Is it how to discreetly sniff your own armpits in public? Is it how not to buy the free sample after you just ate three of them? Not quite. Instead, it is about how to make friends as an adult. Because when you're a kid, making friends is easy. You're buddies with the neighbors or the kids you see in class every day. But after pomp and circumstance plays for the last time and you've tossed your mortarboard, you are thrust into a new world of adulting where everything, including friendship, gets more ambiguous. But fear not. You are not alone. And here is what you need to know. I hope you enjoy it. The Building Blocks of Beautiful Friendships they're not what you think. It is a luxury to be understood. Ralph Waldo Emerson. Maddie turned the key and opened the door to her apartment, where another long evening stretched before her. She felt deflated. She was a year into living in San Jose, having moved there from her tiny hometown in the Sierra Nevada. Jobs were scarce there, so when she got an offer to manage payroll for a shipping company in San Jose, she took the chance, even though she didn't know a soul in the city. Overall, the move had been a success. The only problem, according to Maddie, was that she had yet to make any friends. It's been a year, she said to me. Everyone at home said to give it a year, that it takes time to get to know people. But I don't think it's supposed to be this slow. I know I have some bad habits. After work, I mostly just stay in, get online, watch TV. I'm scared to put myself out there. Everyone said I was brave to move here, but now I'm wondering if it was stupid. She blinked back tears. Why can't I find people I can connect with, she said. It's embarrassing, but I even Googled how to make friends, and everything just says to go to meetups or join a book club or volunteer. Everything says to volunteer. I'm not an idiot. I know that stuff, and that's not it. I can find a book club. It's walking into the book club and trying to think of things to say for an hour that's hard. What am I supposed to say to these people? I run out of things to say after, hi, I'm Maddie. Nora, by contrast, knows lots of people. Nora is a stay-at-home mom with two kids and knows all the other moms by name from school, scouts, or soccer. 
She waves and says hi, exchanges small talk, and though the other moms are friendly, Nora notices they're a bit formal with her, unsure of how to respond. No one knows me, Nora says. I'm always the person who's the last to meet everyone. People always say, oh, I didn't realize you didn't know each other. I know a lot of people on a shallow acquaintance level, and I have a couple of close friends, but I'd like to branch out. I have lots of friends on Facebook, but I know that's not real. The only person I'd really be okay confiding in is my husband. I'm always the outsider, and I'm not sure exactly how that happens. I see people talking easily about random stuff, and it's such a mystery. I'm not sure how to get to that point. Even without social anxiety, making friends as an adult is hard. A meta-analysis of 177,000 participants in the prestigious journal Psychological Bulletin found that social circles expand until early adulthood and then shrink from there. Back in 2006, a large-scale survey found that more than half, 53% of Americans, didn't have any confidants who weren't family. A quarter of American adults, one in four, had no confidants at all. Over 10 years later, I'd be willing to bet the percentage has crept even higher. Mix social anxiety with other challenges, like Maddie's moving to a new city, the dispersion of graduation, getting clean or sober, going through an upheaval like divorce, or simply realizing you've had your nose to the grindstone so long that everyone has drifted away, and it can feel like you have to start from scratch, but have no idea how this game works. And you think that with so many people feeling isolated, like Maddie and Nora, everyone would be talking about it. But no one does. There's a stigma to admitting you have no friends, or that you're lonely. To make matters worse, if you look for advice on how to make friends, like Maddie, you usually end up with a list of places to meet people. But that's not what you're looking for. Meeting people is really different from making friends. One is an event, the other is a process. When Maddie searches for how to make friends, the answer she's looking for is not volunteer at an animal shelter. She's looking for the answer to, what do I do once we've shaken hands and exchanged names? Now what? Maddie and Nora, respectively, have two problems common in social anxiety. Either we feel like we don't know anyone, or we know enough people but don't feel close to them. Either way, we often think, what's wrong with me? Nothing's wrong with you, but social anxiety magically confers filters that are getting in your way. Sometimes it's our presumptions. We unconsciously create too stringent a filter and rule out too many people. It might be demographic. Oh, she's married or single. That's not going to work. It might be perception. Oh, she's so busy. That's not going to work. Or she probably has a lot of friends already. That's not going to work. Or we might just have a low tolerance for ambiguity. If she's not 100% unambiguously welcoming, we rule her out. That's not going to work. Sometimes it's our expectations. Remember the perfectionism chapter? Those of us prone to social anxiety tend to look for an instant capital F friend. Without even realizing it, we're looking for a ready-made BFF with whom we feel connected right away. We wish we could walk into an event and walk out arm in arm with a new buddy or two, but on this planet, that rarely happens. Social anxiety tells us we should find friends instantly. The semantics are subtle, but telling. Social anxiety tells us to find a friend, 
to win someone over right away. But real friends must be made. Friendship is a process, not a ready-made discovery. But that's actually good news. Rather than searching for a diamond in the rough, it turns out the rough contains scores of potential friends. The raw stuff, the stardust that transforms into friends, is everywhere. Almost everyone is a candidate. Oddly, to make a friend, you don't need the right person. Instead, the person becomes right over time. So how does this work? If friends aren't found hunter-gatherer style, but instead are cultivated like advanced agriculture, how do we do this? Here is where to start. Is someone friendly to you? Great, they're in. This is the only bar. You're not friends yet, but you're friendly with each other. Some of your friend candidates will stay at this level, but three things will move others toward friendship. Repetition. The first is simply seeing someone over and over again. This seems obvious, but as recently as the late 1940s, it was thought that people made friends the Freudian way, that is, drawn together by a mystical intermingling of subconscious childhood memory. But three professors at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, chief among them the pioneering social psychologist Leon Festinger, changed that in a fundamental way. In 1946, a tidal wave of World War II veterans enrolled at MIT. Seemingly overnight, some 3,000 of the university's 5,000 students were vets. Many, having put their education on hold to fight in the war, were at a different life stage than their fellow students. Many were married, some had kids, and MIT scrambled to accommodate them in the hastily constructed temporary housing community of Westgate West on the far western edge of campus. In total, 180 temporary apartments, two-story structures with front doors that opened to outdoor walkways like a Motel 6, were constructed from surplus military barracks. The sidewalks outside the buildings were unpaved, the accommodations bare bones. This being MIT, however, people got creative in order to improve their apartments. One father, a mechanical engineering major, created a device out of old washing machine parts that rocked his baby's crib and, to the dismay of the neighbors, thumped and thwacked into the night. But in addition to being creative, people were friendly too. And it was into this environment that Festinger and his colleagues strode with a research question. Who was friends with whom? They asked residents to name their three closest friends, curious to learn if they shared beliefs, interests, attitudes, or childhood experiences. The answer, the team discovered, was much less glamorous. Far from sharing fundamental commonalities, friends often shared nothing more than a hallway. Proximity was the biggest predictor of friendship. Next-door neighbors were most likely to be friends. People who lived on either end of the first floor at the foot of the stairwells were downright popular, presumably because everyone on the second floor had to pass by their apartment multiple times a day. At first, Festinger and his team thought proximity was the key. But proximity, they realized, was a proxy for something else, repetition. We tend to make friends with the people we see most often. Repeated contacts, like seeing your neighbors coming home with the kids, headed to the market, or on the way to mechanical engineering class, are the foundation of friendship. In 1957, just over 10 years after its construction, Westgate West was systematically emptied and demolished to create permanent housing. But the discovery the housing complex revealed 
lives on. Additional studies confirmed the effect, such as one where 44 state police trainees reported their best friends were those who fell closest to them in alphabetical order of seating. We can make friends with almost anyone, provided our potential friend is not mean-spirited, given time and repeated encounters, we can, and do, become friends with whoever's around. So how does this apply to Maddie? To have a shot at making friends, the specific activity is almost beside the point. It's less about what or where than about how often and whom. To have the best shot at friendship, she needs to see a steady drumbeat of the same faces, the same people, regularly. That rules out most come-and-go situations like the gym, but rules in specific gym classes where the same core people show up every week. It rules out one-time events or drop-in meetups where the people change constantly, but rules in, say, dog parks at a consistent time of day. Classes can work, but only if they're interactive, like tango or a writer's workshop, not lecture style. Forget about social media, bars, or clubs. Here, people bring the friends they already have and hang out together. The group is closed unless you're trying to pick someone up. When you're starting out, the best strategy is to join a ready-made community open to others. An ultimate frisbee team, a running group, a bike polo team, a choral group, community theater, a church group, and yes, a book club. In my case, preschool co-ops have twice jump-started my social life after cross-country moves. And then... Keep showing up. Give any new social endeavor at least a season, or around three or four months, but longer is better. Lore has it that it takes six to eight conversations, not just high, before people consider each other a friend. But to start, remember your only criterion. Is this person nice to me? If they grunt and stare at their phone when you say hi, then no. But if you get a smile and some basic small talk, you have a candidate. They're not going to invite you over for dinner, yet. But don't stop saying hi simply because one conversation didn't lead to binge-watching old seasons of Louie together on your couch. Remember, friendship is fostered, not found. So, keep showing up. You may not be taken seriously until you've come back a few times. Especially if it's a public group, they probably get a lot of one-and-dones. Distinguish yourself by showing up again and again. Then. Once you've established yourself, a well-kept secret is to take on a leadership role. Remember Chapter 8? Playing a role is a blessing for the shy among us because it requires less social improvising. You'll have a set of duties and a reason to connect with everyone, even if it's just to remind them about the holiday party or encourage them to donate to the food drive. After we discussed this, Maddie was equally fired up and frightened. She bought what I was saying about repetition but was scared. She offered that three of her female co-workers often ate lunch together in the break room. Usually, Maddie would eat at her desk or in her car. The setup was too good to pass up. Same people, pretty much every day. They were cordial already, which again, is the only bar. How to approach the group was a question. Maddie dreaded what she called the hi guys hover, so we decided to have her get to lunch first and let the group join around her. At first, Maddie felt awkward. She didn't know the context of anything they were talking about, but she stuck it out anyway, just listening, nodding, and to her surprise, laughing along a couple of times. She kept reminding herself, they're friendly, they're friendly. 
Before she actually sat at the table with them, Maddie realized, she had ruled them out as potential friends because two were older and one was an intern. She had thought she needed more commonality in a friend, someone her age with her background. Looking back, she also realized she had been dying for someone else to initiate, but they all thought she just wanted to keep to herself. It was basically a big, silent miscommunication on both sides. Maddie wasn't sure if joining lunch that first time had gone well or not, but later that night, she got a Facebook friend request from one of them. There's still a long way to go, and I'm not sure if we'll end up capital F friends or not, but this isn't a bad start, Maddie reported. Remember, if they're friendly, they're in. Think of everyone you're friendly with or could be friendly with. There. I bet you just broadened your social life substantially. If you have kids or pets, you know stains and odors in your carpet and upholstery are inevitable. But the experts at ChemDry can help. ChemDry removes odors and stubborn stains by sending millions of carbonating bubbles deep within your carpet. ChemDry lifts dirt, urine, and stains to the surface to then be extracted away, giving you a cleaner and healthier home. Call 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com to connect with your local ChemDry and learn about special offers in your area. That's 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com today. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Oh, the charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Give them something to work with. Next comes disclosure. This is the second step for Maddie, but the first for people like Nora, who are stuck in limbo between acquaintances and friends. Like Nora, many of us have a collection of half-baked friendships and people we are friendly with, but we can't seem to get beyond that. Sometimes this is the result of the perfectionist rearing its head again. Nobody seems interested. Everyone is so busy with life and kids and everything, Nora says. Without really realizing it, Nora is waiting for someone to seem interested, meaning someone who unambiguously approaches her. Nora wants certainty. Without realizing it, she wants the potential friend to initiate interesting, easy conversation and invite her to do things. But because she's waiting for a friendship that materializes into clear, sharp focus, she inadvertently screens out everyone else. Despite having halfway their friends all around her, she thinks she has to start from scratch. How to take it to the next level. To jargonize it, we use disclosure, which simply means sharing what we think, do, and feel with others. This seems easy enough, but it's not intuitive. Folks susceptible to social anxiety don't often talk about themselves. We're polite and pleasant, but others often get the impression we're distant, formal, or otherwise keep the world at arm's length. 
disclosure got a lot of press when the 36 questions to fall in love phenomenon made the rounds of the interweb. Much has been made about this list of questions, with online articles like, I asked a stranger these 36 questions to see if we'd fall in love, and we did. And an essay in the New York Times titled, To Fall in Love with Anyone, Do This. It sounded like a silver bullet for the lovelorn. But the real story is actually quite clinical, which makes it that much more amazing. More than 20 years ago, in 1997, psychologists Arthur and Elaine Aaron and a handful of colleagues from around the country published a paper with an innocuously dry title, The Experimental Generation of Interpersonal Closeness, a Procedure and Some Preliminary Findings. The procedure consisted of turning strangers into intimates in the laboratory by having them ask each other three sets of 12 questions. Each set became more probing and personal as they advanced. Set one included questions like, for what in your life do you feel most grateful? And do you have a secret hunch about how you will die? Set two goes a bit deeper. Is there something that you've dreamed of doing for a long time? Why haven't you done it? And how close and warm is your family? Do you feel your childhood was happier than most other people's? Set three ups the ante again with questions like, tell your partner what you like about them. Be very honest this time, saying things that you might not say to someone you've just met. And share a personal problem and ask your partner's advice on how he or she might handle it. Also, ask your partner to reflect back to you how you seem to be feeling about the problem you have chosen. But the protocol wasn't meant to make people fall in love. Instead, the 36 questions were simply meant to induce closeness and intimacy in a laboratory setting without the messiness of relationships that occur naturally in the wilds of humankind. The questions were meant to eliminate experimental variability, not induce wedding bells, though the study team got an inkling of the power of the 36 questions when two subjects who had met during the study pilot ended up getting married. 20 years later, when the media caught wind of the questions, it treated them like they were a secret recipe for love. But the specific questions aren't magic. Instead, according to the researchers, it's the act of sustained, escalating, reciprocal, and personalistic disclosure that sparks liking the other person and indeed sparks them to like us. The 36 questions led to closeness through disclosure in Fast Forward. Usually what we do when we meet someone new is small talk. Small talk is important. It's the social niceties test track of conversation. But by definition, it stays on the surface. It's not about you. It's about other things. Traffic, the weather, that your coworker Darren is out sick and there must be something going around. Disclosure, however, is about you. Again, it means sharing bits of what you think and do and feel. Any topic is game. Even banal small talk can be tweaked to become a disclosure. For example... Talking about the weather can be a disclosure. You're happy that it's getting cooler because fall is your favorite season. Or when you were younger, you used to love summer, but now you don't deal with the heat as well. Or when you were a kid, every time it rained, you and your brother would rescue all the worms that came out on the sidewalk and bring them home in a jar, much to the chagrin of your mother. There. You're still talking about the weather, but you're also offering up a little tidbit about yourself, which can serve as the launch pad of conversation. When I work with the Maddies and Noras of the world about disclosure, 
The next question is, inevitably, but what do I talk about? But that's not actually their question. Just like Maddie doesn't want to be told to volunteer, she doesn't need a list of possible topics. The real question is, how do I think through the paralyzing anxiety and come up with something that doesn't sound totally stupid? The answer is, yet again, to lower the bar. We think we have to be interesting, entertaining, or effortless, but that's too much pressure. Indeed, if you tell yourself you are not allowed to say anything totally stupid, you won't say anything. So start with what you're doing or thinking. Say hi, ask how they are, and share some tidbit about what you're doing, what you just did, what you're planning, or what you've been thinking about recently. It doesn't have to be smart, insightful, or articulate. It just has to be about you. Think of it this way. Remember when Facebook was new-ish? Circa 2007, Facebook prompted its users to update their status by asking, what are you doing right now? Circa 2009, it shifted to, what's on your mind? Start there. I'm fine, thanks. We're going to see my in-laws this weekend. Or, I'm fine, thanks. I've been mulling over whether or not to take adult piano lessons. Or, I'm fine, thanks. I've been craving barbecue for a few days. What's your favorite place around here? Whatever you say doesn't have to be earth-shattering. The only criterion is that it should reveal a tiny tidbit about you. I rode my bike here, and it was so much faster than sitting in traffic. I have to buy a birthday present for my niece, and I'm not sure what to get her. Ugh, I have a song that was playing at the gas station stuck in my head. This will feel wrong at first. It will feel like you're talking too much. It will feel selfish, like you're taking up too much space or making it about you. But this is only because you are comparing it to being reticent. Try it and see what happens. Sometimes you'll get a lame answer. Yeah, that's cool. Or, oh, really? And then, nothing. A conversational tumbleweed will roll by. But that's fine. A lot of conversations are lame. But here's the thing. A lame conversation doesn't mean you're lame. Other times, you'll get a relatively substantial answer, and then you're off to the conversational races. Too many of us have been told we're too quiet or that we need to speak up more. We've heard it over and over again, and it always sounds like a critique, as if something is wrong with us. Thankfully, the introvert movement has validated and empowered all of us quiet types. But stretch. If someone starts a conversation with you, gently encourage yourself to disclose a little more than usual. It's tempting to respond to, do you have any siblings? With simply, yes, one younger brother. But stretch it to, yes, one younger brother, but we were five years apart, so by the time I went to college, he was still in middle school, and every time I came home, I felt like I had to get to know him again. Now that we're both grown-ups, we're buddies. He's an ER doc in Minneapolis. Likewise, the answer to, where are you from, can shift from Houston to Houston, but I haven't lived there in 20 years, though I've gone back a couple times for the rodeo. Then, do something you're already good at. Listen. Turn your attention inside out. Ultimately, the goal of conversation is intimacy. Intimacy is a word that often has sexual overtones, like intimate apparel or, worse, intimate dryness, but it doesn't have to. It comes from the Latin meaning inmost, as in sharing what is inmost, what you think and do and feel, with others. The only note of caution is that disclosure is different from confession. 
In the 36 questions paper, the researchers defined disclosure as escalating and reciprocal, meaning that telling someone about yourself should be a gradual give and take. Once, at a bridal shower, I met a friend of the bride. I introduced myself, shook her hand, and before I said another word, she told me she was pregnant through a sperm donor and that to prepare for the birth, her doula had told her to soak a thong in vitamin E oil and hike it up to her perineum so she wouldn't tear. I wasn't sure what to say to her for the rest of the shower. I kept squirming at the mental image of her oily wedgie. I'm no prude, but as a first conversation, her revelations were a tad overwhelming. More seriously, I once had a client who would disclose in her first conversations that she had been abused as a child and had twice been raped. It was too heavy, too fast, and she was crushed when people steered clear afterwards. She thought she was speaking her truth, but as we collaboratively decided, other people couldn't handle her full truth right away. There were other truths that made up who she was, and she could share those first, saving the deeper truths for later. As for Maddie, she realized book clubs might be easier if she gave people more to work with besides, hi, I'm Maddie. At the first meeting, she told me, after she introduced herself in the opening go-around, she had remained silent and looked largely at the floor, equally hoping that someone would talk to her and that everyone would leave her alone. Turns out, a woman had approached her afterwards to see how she liked the group. Maddie had said, it was great, thanks, with a smile, but left it at that. The woman took Maddie's cue and said, great, hope you'll join us again, and then moved on. Social anxiety makes us masters of ending conversations. It's easy. A certain tone of finality, saying hi but not stopping to chat, or simply not saying anything more, sends the message that we don't want to talk. Ending conversation is another safety behavior. We're trying to save ourselves from the anxiety. But we trade the anxiety of the moment for loneliness in the long run. Maddie went back to the book club determined to try something new. She knew victory was not in how she felt. Instead, it was in her actions. Looking at people, disclosing, listening, and responding. The same woman approached and asked how she liked the book. So Maddie took a deep breath and gave her a little more to work with. It was great, thanks. I was actually surprised at how much I liked the book. I'm not usually a genre fiction fan. I usually go for big intergenerational sagas. A short chat ensued, plus an exchange of recommendations. It wasn't a deep heart-to-heart. The earth didn't shake, though Maddie's knees did. But to Maddie, it was the opening to a new world. To be sure, one conversation is a drop in the bucket. But disclosure by disclosure, conversation by conversation, over time and practice, the drops fill the bucket. And what about Nora? She decided to combine showing up with disclosure. The next day, she surprised her daughter by suggesting they hang out at the playground after school rather than heading straight home, a change in routine that rendered Nora momentarily unable to breathe. She spotted a few women she knew, but felt overwhelmed by trying to join a group. Nora almost faked having to run an errand, looking for an excuse to leave. But then, her daughter asked Nora to push her on the swings, and another mom was there as well, pushing away. Nora said hi and blurted out that she was wondering at what age kids learn to pump on the swings. A conversation about developmental milestones left Nora in a sweat, and her nervous energy made her push her happily squealing daughter higher than ever before, but she had a long conversation. When I saw her next, she said Neil Armstrong's moon landing quote rang through her head 
for the rest of the afternoon. When you're first getting started, expect some false starts. We all get a little weird and desperate when we're lonely. If you're out of practice, you become less and less confident that you even know how to talk, much less form full sentences to which another human can respond. Worse, we also start interpreting everyone as threatening, every smile as scornful, every interaction as rejecting. But then we make it worse. We act as if the world is against us, a self-fulfilling prophecy called behavioral confirmation. If Maddie expects no one will talk to her, she won't say hello. If Nora expects the moms to be judgy instead of friendly, she'll make a beeline for home, not the playground. But don't base success on the other person's response. Don't base success on how nervous you feel. Base success only on what you do. Did you manage to share a little bit of yourself? Great. The first times are the hardest. Try again and try again soon, not weeks later. Keep the momentum going. It will get easier, I promise. Show them that you like them. The third part of crafting a friendship, besides repetition and disclosure, is showing others that you like them. People like those who like them. People also like those who take the initiative. In academic terms, it's called pro-social behavior. But more simply, it's showing someone that you're pleased to be around them. At its simplest, showing you like someone is being the first to say hi or lighting up with a smile when they say hi to you. Slightly more advanced is unnecessary conversation. I once had a colleague who would stop at every coworker's office in the morning to say hi. Just saying hello, she always said, or just checking in. She called it doing the rounds. Her efforts were thoughtful and made me like her. Next is taking socializing out of the usual context and into another. For instance, parents from Nora's daughter's class, after connecting on the playground, may arrange a play date, a change of context from schoolyard to home. After racking up those six to eight conversations hanging around after book club, Maddie may invite a book club buddy out for coffee, a change of context from the group to a duo. If you get invited to a get-together, someone from Tai Chi is having a birthday, a guy from your hip-hop class is having a Super Bowl party, go, even if just for a pop-in. People are touched when you show up to their events. And more important, it moves your friendship to another context and therefore another level. So approach. Be the first to say hi. Once your friendship has gelled in the original context, invite them on a hike, to a bookstore reading, to try the new ramen place in town. All these things are tough. Perfectionistic worry kicks in. We start worrying about the details. What if the hike is too hard for her? What if there's no parking near the bookstore and he gets mad at me? Maybe the ramen place will be sketchy. Indeed, taking the initiative is hard. But a helpful tool is to turn the tables. How would you feel if they invited you? Probably delighted. How would you feel if something went wrong? Probably understanding. Assume the same for them. Next, be specific. Rather than want to do something sometime, try, the kids have been bugging me about trying that new rock climbing place. Are you guys free this weekend? Or want to grab coffee on Monday? I'm free after one o'clock. Specification shows you're sincere. Finally, while almost everyone has adequate social skills, we are more likely to use them and reach out when we feel connected already, which isn't particularly useful if you're feeling lonely. 
So turn this on its head to combat occasional waves of loneliness, a weekend with no plans, a particularly FOMO-inducing Instagram moment. Use your feelings as a cue to take action. Whenever you feel lonesome, make social plans. Email a friend to meet up for a movie next weekend or to look at the schedule for that bocce and beer group you've been meaning to join. It won't make company appear in the moment, but you'll have created something social to look forward to. To sum it all up, making friends consists mostly of overcoming inertia, both others and our own. Assuming someone is friendly to begin with, repetition, disclosure, and taking the initiative hammer out a solid friendship that will stand the test of time. Forget everything you know about being popular. Illinois, mid-1990s. Dr. Jennifer Parkhurst, a psychologist at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, was standing in front of an audience most others wouldn't dare to face. No, not angry mobsters or rowdy hooligans. Instead, it was a classroom full of middle schoolers. That day, classroom by classroom, Dr. Parkhurst and her graduate student, Andrea Hopmeyer, were reporting the results of their data collection for a study on popularity to their 7th and 8th grade subjects, checking in much as a congressional representative would do for her constituents. As Dr. Parkhurst stood in front of the class, braces flashed back at her. Faces studded with pimples betrayed raging hormones. A mix of awkwardness, angst, and aspirational sophistication emanated from the rows of Gerbaud jeans and Reebok pumps. Parkhurst thanked the whole class for their participation and began her report. So this is what we found out. In your class, the most popular kids are kind, cooperative, and trustworthy, and they don't start fights. A murmur rippled through the classroom. A girl in a pink t-shirt raised her hand. That's not true, she said. Popular kids are not friendly and nice. They're mean and stuck up. Emboldened, other hands shot up. Popular kids do start fights. They're not kind or cooperative. They're mean. Parkhurst was puzzled. But what I just said was based on the answers you gave us, she said. Pink t-shirt girl crossed her arms. Then everyone who took your survey must have lied. Yeah, echoed the class. Parkhurst thought for a moment. To be sure, she added, do you like these kids? What roared back was definitive. No, we can't stand them. The kids couldn't have known it, but in that moment, they upended decades of research methodology. Back on campus, Parkhurst and Hopmeyer, who is now a researcher at Occidental College, pondered what the kids had said. The researchers had used a well-established method to measure popularity. Each kid got a list of others in their grade. Students were asked to circle the names of the three kids they liked best and the three kids they liked least. Then they were asked to do the same for those who are kind, someone you can trust, cooperates, starts fights, easy to push around, and can't take teasing. It was a simple tally. You were popular if you got lots of like-most votes and few like-least votes. You were unpopular if you got lots of like-least votes and few like-most votes. Easy peasy. But in the face of the kids' feedback, Parkhurst and Hopmeyer reconsidered how to measure popularity. Maybe popularity wasn't just a tally of likes and dislikes. They did another study, this time with one simple tweak. They added popular to the list. Then they crunched the numbers again. What they found changed the game. With the new method, being chosen as popular didn't actually mean a kid was well-liked. 
It meant they were dominant. The kids who were pegged as popular did get lots of likes, but they also got many dislikes. These alpha dogs and queen bees were liked by some, but mostly by other high-status kids. With others, they racked up the eye rolls. It's easy to mistake being dominant for being liked, because dominant kids get a lot of attention. Their visibility is high. The shy among us despair, thinking, I'll never be able to do that, or that's not me. But you don't need to be someone you're not. You don't need to own the room to be liked. You don't need to be a big shot, alpha, or self-important. True, honest, by-the-numbers popularity, as Parkhurst and her colleagues discovered, didn't come from commanding attention or gaining deference. It didn't even come from having the most confidence. Instead, the kids with the most like-most votes and the fewest like-least votes were those who were also rated as the package deal of kind, cooperative, and trustworthy. Dominance, it turns out, equaled perceived popularity. Warm-heartedness equaled actual popularity. This phenomenon continues into adulthood. An oft-cited study found that in first impressions of others, we prioritize warmth over anything else, which is defined as, you guessed it, kindness and trustworthiness. It's startling, then, to realize that the shouts and whispers of the inner critic are mostly about competence and confidence. We worry we'll do something stupid, look weird, seem incompetent. We work hard to increase our competence and confidence, but we're barking up the wrong tree. Competence and confidence aren't what others are hoping for in a friend. They're hoping for warmth. Dr. David Moscovich puts it this way. If you try to be warm and friendly and curious, then everything else, the blemishes and foibles and awkward behaviors all of us have simply because we're human, becomes much less important to the other person because we're connecting with them. And that's what matters, connection, which is built on warmth and trust. So keep showing up. Share what you think and feel and do. Show others that you like them. These are the building blocks of beautiful friendships. Thank you so much for making The Savvy Psychologist a part of your life. If you like the excerpt, you can pick up a copy wherever you like to get your audiobooks. And if you prefer to read with your eyeballs rather than your ears, you can do that too with the ebook or a good old-fashioned hardback wherever you like to buy your books. As always, Savvy Psychologist is strictly for informational purposes and doesn't substitute for mental health care from a licensed professional. Thank you for listening and have an amazing week. I'll see you here next Friday for a happier, healthier mind. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. 
Ashley High Performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.